As we begin our uh, Advent series, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 13. 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 13, and we're going to work our way down from there. I'm going to go ahead and read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God bless you. We are fastly approaching the Christmas season. This is a time of hope. Uh, We all have hope in one area of life or another. We all hope to graduate from school. We hope to get married and start a family someday. We hope to start a business or find other means of income to provide and simply enjoy our families. Many of us even have hopes for the Christmas season. We hope to find the right gift under the tree. We hope to find or hear Christmas music, cheerful Christmas music in the malls as we shop. We hope to spend time with our family and friends. We are full of hope for what this season may bring. However, the hope in these things fades away. You know, we often use the Christmas season, the gifts and the food and the gathering of family and friends and the movies and the parties and the decorations. We use these things to fill a void. And unfortunately, many of us will wake up the day after Christmas with the same void that we had before Christmas Day. Because the truth is no matter how many presents we give, no matter how many presents we receive, and no matter how many lights we hang on the tree or on our house, and no matter how big the Christmas party is that we attend or even throw, building our hope in these things will not fill the void in our hearts because only Jesus can fill that void. And so I want to encourage you here at Coastal Church Yorktown to leave this place with a hope built not in materialistic things, but in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Advent is all about. What is the Advent? The Advent is remembering that Christ has come and that Christ will return. The Advent is remembering that Christ has come and that Christ will return. I hope must not be 
in the Christmas feeling that this holiday is saturated with. I hope must be in the fact that Jesus came to live among sinful beings like you and I, and that one day he will come again to take away his bride, the church. And when our hope is in Jesus' return, we can live a life that pleases and honors him. And so as we dive into 1 Peter, the Holy Spirit will teach us how to do so as we unpack this scripture. My first point, we need a clear mind for holiness. We need a clear mind for holiness. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this tells us to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded. When you read the King James Version, it gives you another way on how to say prepare your mind for action. It is to gird up your loins. To the first century Jew, girding up your loins is to pull up your tunic and get ready for battle. A modern translation, if he were to write this now, he would tell us to roll up our sleeves and prepare to get dirty. Peter is telling us to prepare and get ready for a godly lifestyle, but not only that, prepare for the struggles that we may face as believers in Jesus Christ. You know, it's easy for us to react to our surroundings. You know, when times seem perfect and life seems like it gives us nothing to complain about, we react with excitement. We grin from ear to ear. However, when we're faced with hardship, we often react with anger and frustration, unrighteous anger. And frustration. And this is a worldly and fleshly response to life circumstances. But when we focus on the second coming of Jesus, we turn from being people who respond like the world to becoming people with active minds. When our hope is fixed on the second coming of Christ, our anticipation of his coming outweighs the challenges that we face. We must prepare our minds. For action. This is written by Peter. Think about who he's writing to. He is writing to a group of believers under the Roman Empire, facing persecution by the emperor. During this time, Rome was under the leadership of one of the most arrogant men of all time. Nero was a man who desired worship, he desired honor, he desired praise, so much so that he would burn Rome to the ground with a desire to rebuild a new city in his honor. You can imagine how the Roman citizens felt about their homes being burned to the ground. They lost their possessions. They lost their way of life. Everything they knew was burned to the ground. And when Nero heard and he saw the reaction of these citizens, it said that he shifted the blame to Christians blaming them for the burning of Rome. And so this played a major role, and some would even say it started the major persecution of those who believe in Jesus. Imagine if these Christians simply reacted to the hardship that they would face without an eternal hope. Imagine if they faced the ridicule and the mockery and the torture and even death without an eternal hope. Just the thought alone would make you want to walk away from the faith to save your reputation and your possessions and even 
your own life. Peter tells us we must have an active mind ready for action. Nowadays, we're living in a time where right is being declared wrong and wrong is being declared right. Peter tells us we must have a mind ready for action. We're living in a time where parents are criticized for not allowing their children to be whatever gender they want to be. We must have our minds ready for action. We're living in a time where the Bible is no longer considered a book inspired by God himself, but it's just another religious book like the Quran. We must have our minds ready for action. He tells us to have a clear mind. Some translations would look at this and call this a sober mind. When a person is drunk, they have no control over their actions. Sometimes they don't even have recollection of what they did or what they said because everything they did and said was out of their control. However, when a sober person is living, they have control over the decisions that are made. To be sober-minded is to be mentally alert. Hope in the Lord's return keeps our minds sober. Again, in verse 13, he says, set your minds or set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. To set your hope fully is to do so without holding back anything. It is to put all your hope in Christ without any reservation. Peter tells us to put all our hope in Christ. Placing all of our hope in our jobs and in our relationships and in our cars and in our money and worldly possessions is what the Bible calls false hope. Psalm 33, 16 through 18, it says the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. My question to you, Coastal Church, what keeps you from placing all your hope in Christ? When our hope is not fully in Christ, we cannot live soberly. Peter tells us to have a clear mind ready for action. My next point, we must not conform to our former selves. We must not conform to our former selves. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In the eyes of God, conforming to your former selves is no different than a child who plays in the mud and gets dirty, comes home, takes a shower, gets cleaned up and walks right past clean clothes only to put the muddy clothes back on to finish the rest of the day. That's nasty. That's nasty. We're told that we must take off the old. That's the next point. We must take off the old and put on the new. We must take off the old and put on the new. And this is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. He says, Put off your old self, which begins to your former, or which belongs to your former self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are not to be conformed to our former selves. We are to put our dirty laundry away and leave it there. We are not to put our dirty clothes back on. This is what baptism is about. It reminds me of baptism. When you are immersed in the water, and before I even go there, baptism is not what saves us. We are not saved because we've been baptized, but baptism is an outward confession. It is a public confession of an inward change. And when we are immersed in the water, we are symbolically dying to our former selves. We are dying to our flesh. We are dying to the old man. But you're not under there too long because, first off, we don't want to get in trouble. But outside of the fact that we don't want to get in trouble, you're not there too long because we bring you back up as a confession of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. When you come up, you are symbolically raised to walk in the newness of life. And when your heart and your mind is changed, you have a desire to live so much like Jesus that it becomes evident to those around you. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 4. The Bible tells us that Peter and John were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and were persecuted by the Pharisees. When the Pharisees heard them preach, they could tell they weren't the most educated men. They could hear their lack of education. Peter and John may not have sound like they had a bachelor's degree. They may not have sound like they went to seminary. They may not have sound like they had a doctorate, but they sounded like they'd been with Jesus. And when your heart is truly changed by the gospel, the light of Christ shines so bright and that others around you will begin to notice something is different. Now that your heart and your mind is changed, you strive to walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus and live like Jesus. You begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates because you have been changed. Peter tells us not to conform to our former selves. If you are in Christ, God has taken your muddy clothes off and has cleaned you up. I encourage you not to put your dirty clothes back on. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. There's two words that stick out in verse 14. The first word is obedience. Obedience is a word of submission. It's a word of submission. I, I have a one-year-old at home who loves to play with outlets. We, we put plastic covers on the outlets, and for some reason, she just loves to go over there. She loves to play with the outlets, and I, and I pick her up, and I try to move her away, and she kicks and she screams and she waves her arms all over the place and she tells me off in her baby language. I don't know what she's saying to me, but I am certain that it is mean and offensive. <laughs> she tells me about myself. And, and, you know, we laugh because she's a little child, doesn't understand. But, but, but how often? Do we kick and how often do we scream and how often are we upset when God picks us up and moves us away from crowds that were harmful? 
How often do we get upset and we kick and we scream and we yell at God when God severs toxic relationships that we thought were good for us? How, how often do we get upset when God's word stands against our heart's desires? Peter tells us we must be obedient. Again, this word obedient is not a word of complete understanding. It is a word of submission. And so God lays out rules and he lays out laws that we may not fully understand. But because he's God, we must submit. The next thing that sticks out in verse 14 is the word children. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. God is our father. Every parent has been in existence longer than their child. And so they've experienced more than the child has. They've already been where the child desires to go. God is our father. He is the creator of heaven and earth, time and space. He can see where the galaxies start and where they end. He can see through the darkness of the ocean's deepest trenches and crevices. He knows the number of stars in the sky and sand on the beach and the number of hairs on our head. He knows the descendants of the unborn just as well as he knows the genealogy. This is the eternal God who has chosen us to be his children. Us with limited understanding. Us with finite wisdom. He has chosen us to be his children. And so as children, we may not always understand the mind and the will of God. Random question. Have any of you guys ever gone to the movies or you guys showed up at someone's house while they're watching a movie and you try to sit with them and you try to watch it with them, but it's one of those crazy movies where you have to sit and you have to go uh, at the beginning in order to understand what's going on. You know, you sit in there and you start to ask questions and you bother the person. Who's that character? And what's he talking about? And what does that phrase mean? And you're annoying the life out of that person because you should have been there at the beginning. Many of us go through that and we've experienced that. But come to find out life in this world is like a movie that started in Genesis and will end in Revelation. Every script, every action, every word, every event is orchestrated by the director. This movie has been playing for thousands of years and we pulled up to the theater and took our seat the day we were born. Some of us in this room may have pulled up and sat down in the 30s or in the 40s or in the 50s or in the 60s. Some of us may have pulled up in the 70s or the 80s, the 90s or the 2000s. Some of us are now bringing our children to the theater and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to sit in the theater. But no matter when you pulled up, you cannot fully understand this movie that's been playing for thousands of years with only decades of experience. The only way you could understand this movie is if you were at the writing table in the beginning when it was written. And so though we may not fully understand the movie, we just have to trust that the director knows what he's doing. If you're in Christ, you are a child of God. We have an eternal father who knows all. We will never fully understand the decisions of our Father. We will never fully understand or even like the standards in God's Word. 
However, we must remember that we are children with only decades of experience. And when you compare decades of experience to an eternal God, there really is no comparison. We must trust him and live as obedient children. My next point, we must conduct ourselves with fear. We must conduct ourselves with fear. Verse 15 through 17, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is a very interesting statement. Living in fear doesn't make us feel comfortable. No one wants to live in fear. In fact, the Bible actually commands us not to live in fear over 365 times. That's a time for every day of the year. But yet, in 1 Peter, we're told to live in fear. So what in the world is Peter talking about? The fear of God and being scared of God are two different things. When you fear God, it's not the same as being scared of him, according to the scripture. If you are an unbeliever, you should fear God as a righteous judge. But to believers, the fear of God is reverence for his holiness, reverence for his greatness, reverence for his power. It's living cautiously so we don't dishonor his character. And so even for the believer, fearing God is more than just respect. Even for the believer, it's honoring God's hatred of sin because God is holy according to verse 16. The fear of the Lord is also taking God's discipline seriously. And this is what Hebrews 12 and 5 talks about. It says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. There are consequences when we sin. I have, uh, it reminds me of growing up in school, and uh, if you grew up with uh, parents who disciplined you like I have, it reminds me of going back to school when you want to be class clown, make people laugh, and get smart with the teacher, I'm not talking about anybody specific, but you, 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 you talk back, and the teacher threatens you, says, I will call your mother. I will call your father. And as a child, you have to act like that doesn't bother you. You stick your chest out and you keep it moving and you act like it doesn't bother you, brush it off. But if they could only see what was on the inside, you get on the school bus, everybody's talking, you don't talk to anybody, there's a chill that goes down your spine, you get off the bus and you walk as slow as you can to get home, because you know that something uncomfortable is getting ready to happen. You get home, my father would tell me, Mark, go upstairs to your room and wait for me. 
Didn't you say that, Dad? You said that. And you go up to your room, and you sit down, and you don't know if you're hot or cold. You don't know if you should clean your room or leave it messy. You don't know if you should start your homework or leave it in the bag. Your mind is everywhere. Because you know that something unpleasant is getting ready to happen. The consequences for our actions are not supposed to be pleasant. Discipline prevents us from further rebellion against God. Discipline brings wisdom in making further decisions. It keeps us humble. And this would mean that discipline is necessary and it's something that the believer needs. Hebrews 12, 6, and 7, it says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The discipline of God is not that of abuse. I want to say that again. The discipline of God is not that of abuse, but it is that of love and protection. Hebrews tells us that those who are disciplined are seen as children in the eyes of God. Discipline keeps our lifestyle holy. To be holy is to be separate, is to be different. And God is holy because of his uniqueness. He is different from humanity, and we are called to live in that same status. We are called to be people who live without sin. And that's what verse 16 says. It says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a quote from several scriptures in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 19.2. The purpose of Leviticus is to provide instruction and laws, guidelines for the Israelites to live a lifestyle of holiness. These laws were to be carried out perfectly as God is perfect. But the truth is that we can't perfectly live this out. The truth is that we can't live a life of holiness perfectly because of our sin nature. We all have a sin nature. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 7, 19. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This sinful nature leads to sinful actions. Due to our sin nature, we cannot completely live holy as God requires. But my next point, we must live in daily gratitude for Jesus Christ. We must live in daily gratitude for Jesus Christ. Verses 18 through 21, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope 
are in God. Due to our sin nature, we cannot completely live holy like God requires. Because God is holy and he's righteous. He made us in his image and in his likeness. But out of arrogance, we rebelled against God. Our rebellion brought sin into the world, separating us from a perfect God. Putting us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. For the wages of sin is death. But instead of giving us what we deserve, instead of giving us his wrath, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, God the son. Jesus, the co-creator of the world, lived in this earth, living a sinless life that we couldn't live, perfectly submitting to the father's will. He was obedient to the father by being obedient to those in authority. He loved perfectly when it came to his enemies. He showed perfect compassion to the lost and forgave sinners perfectly. Jesus lived a sinless life. Because his life was so sinless, he took the wrath of the Father on our behalf. He took the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross. He was buried, but three days later, he bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And when our faith is in Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin. And though sin may have influence over us, it will never have dominion. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sin and believe the gospel in our hearts, we are a part of the family of God. And one day, I don't know the day, I don't know the hour, but one day Jesus will come back for all those in the family of God. If you are in the family of God, you are guaranteed to see Jesus face to face when this life is over and will experience the love and the peace and the joy of God without any worldly or sinly, sinful interruptions. This is what the believer looks forward to. Through the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the burial and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, believers can live in anticipation of Christ's return. Right now, the world is chaotic. There are mass shootings and there are robberies and there's death from reckless and drunk driving. There's chaos in this world that can terrorize the minds. People are dying every day. But as believers in Christ, we should live in daily gratitude that death in this world leads to eternal life on the other side. We should live in daily gratitude knowing that the chaos of this world is temporary. And when Jesus comes back for his church, we will live in a world where every tear of pain is wiped away and the chaos will be no more. I'm thankful for Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that he provided a way for me to one day see him face to face. Though our sin nature hinders us from perfectly living out holiness, while we wait on Christ's return, we can strive to live holy every day. Waiting on the Lord's return should motivate us to live a lifestyle of holiness. And Peter tells us in verse, verses 18 through 21 that God will redeem the wicked sinner, the sinner, you and me. Verse 21, it states, in doing so, that we must put our hope in God. Again, as the Christmas season is fastly approaching, we shouldn't put our hope in the Christmas presents and in the parties and in the decorations, 
We shouldn't put our hope in our careers or our relationships or the money or any worldly possessions. Our hope should be in a God who loves us and in a God who cares for us. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us the story of Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he died and rose again. The Bible says that he took bread and he broke it, representing his broken body for us. And he took the cup of wine, symbolically or symbolizing his innocent blood that would be shed for us. And Paul goes further to tell us to examine ourselves, examine our lifestyle, examine our relationship with God, examine our hearts. My question to you, Coastal, what in your heart hinders you from focusing on the second coming of Jesus Christ? What in your heart hinders you from placing your eternal hope over worldly possessions? One of the best ways that we can live in gratitude of what Jesus has done is by taking time to examine our hearts daily. What hinders you? My next point, what we do in the meantime, we must love one another. This is what we do in the meantime while we're waiting in anticipation of the Lord's coming. We must love one another. I encourage you to read verses 22 through 25 when time allows. Verses 22 through 25, it tells us that those whose souls are purified, will truly love one another. It can be extremely hard for us to love one another because we offend each other daily. Even believers offend one another from time to time. It can be challenging to show love to one another. However, we do not show love to each other in our own strength, but we love through the strength of God. 1 Peter 1.23, again, you can read this when time allows, it tells us that we have been born of the word of God. So my next point, the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to love one another and live holy. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength to love one another and live holy. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave lives in those who believe in Christ. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, can change our hearts so that we can fervently love one another and demonstrate our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to love those who are kind to us. It's easy for us to love those who show love to us. But it's hard to love those who don't show love and kindness to us, who give us a hard time. God calls all people to love who are in Christ, it calls us to love those who are both unkind and kind. Those who hope in the return of Jesus Christ show love to all. My last point, God's word gives us the strength to love. And I know I said read verses 22 through 25 in your spare time, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 24 and 25. A quote from Isaiah, Peter says, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. God has given us his word as directions 
to live like Jesus. He's given us his word to teach us how to love like Jesus. It teaches us how to confess our dependency upon God as our father as we are his children. God's word reminds us daily that the things of this world are temporary, but he is eternal. Those who hope in Christ's return will have an active mind. They'll have clear and sober minds. They will not conform to their former selves, their, sin, their sinful life. They will live a holy life. They'll live in the righteous fear of God. They live in gratitude for what Jesus has done for them. And they love everyone around them through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't perfectly live this out. But again, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do this. And through the time that we have to dive in God's word head first. I want to encourage you as this Christmas season is approaching. Do not build your hope in worldly possessions. Don't build your hope in the gifts and this holiday season. But build your hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Build your hope on the fact that Jesus has already come and he will come again for his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're holy. Thank you that you're righteous. Thank you that you're perfect. And yet you chose sinful beings like us to be your children. We thank you that you loved us and your love was perfectly demonstrated through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We thank you for the hope of eternal life through him. And we thank you that Jesus will come again. We ask through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would give us the strength to live this anticipation out. That we would demonstrate our belief in the gospel by what we say and what we do. That our light would shine so bright that when men see our good works, they would glorify our Father in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and what you're getting ready to do. In Jesus' name. The gospel has been preached. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to do business with God, we have a prayer team that is at the altar. Feel free to join them in prayer. Feel free to make your requests known unto God by praying with them. And so we're going to stand as the worship team comes and leads us in song. Let's all stand and worship together. God bless you.